Hello, and welcome to my very short poetry pod. I've been really overwhelmed with the amount of downloads I've had for me reading other people's poetry. And even though it goes against all of my core to compare myself by recording my own, I am going to give you a quick recording of my own poetry. But before I do, let me take you on a trip back through time. The year is 2006. I've just started university. And up until this point, while I had fallen in love with Philip Larkin's poetry and I'd begun to really appreciate just how powerful verse can be, I hadn't yet really got round to writing my own poetry with any real success. And I still haven't. And nothing ever really quite prepared me for my first term at the University of Chester, where on my English course, one of our lecturers said that one thing that they liked to try and do every now and again was gather people together who enjoyed writing recreationally and, you know, essentially read our own stuff aloud. Now, I'm sure there are some people whose toes are curling right now at the very prospects of this, and it sounds very cringy and very, very twee. Believe you me, I was one of them. And because I was quite a sociable sort of chap, still am, I volunteered to help run it. Well, what a teacher's pet, eh? And I got myself into the situation where we'd organised the room in the vicarage, and we'd organised some sort of system of who'd like to read what. I had a couple of poems knocking around in a small notebook somewhere that thankfully have never seen the light of day since. And then we had to go to the head of English, Dr Derek Alsop. Now, I'll try not to get emotional here, but I promise nothing. Derek Alsop was probably one of my favourite ever teachers and I'm including my time at university, obviously, because really at age 18, you might think you know it all, but you're still a kid. Derek was absolutely brilliant, and he was probably the reason that I came to University of Chester in the first place. On an open day, on a freezing February afternoon, the year before, I'd taken the train up, which is no small feat from the south coast, and when I got there, he was giving the Howl, Howl, Howl segment from Lear. And Derek is... Derek was a magnificently bearded Bristolian man with a fantastic baritone sort of bassy voice. And he just did what I've tried to do ever since. Ever since I've become an educator. It's just hold the room. And just be there. Be, have such a presence in what you say. Believe everything that you say. And if you don't believe in what you're saying, then don't say it. And of course, that's idealism talking, but I believed in him at that moment in time. And he talked about just the sheer grief of this scene. I was absolutely mesmerised. And from that point, I thought, I don't, I don't care that there are other universities that might be higher up the league tables. I don't really give a shit. I want to come here. I want to be taught by him. <laughs> and the irony was, I never actually had Derek as my lecturer. Not properly. He was the head of English. He took certain modules, which I just so happened not to take. 
I had many other great lecturers while I was there, including Graham Atkin, Ashley Chartler, Emma Rees, Peter Blair, and others who I'm sure their names will come back to me the minute I press stop on the recording. But I digress. Derek was the man. And I went to him, to his office, and I sort of knocked gingerly on the door and said, uh, hello Derek, um, so everything's set up for tonight, I've, I've, I've got the chairs set out and um, you know we've got a sort of running order and he sort of finishes reading something or typing something or whatever it was he was doing and he sort of looks across at me like he's never seen me before and to be fair he probably didn't have a clue who I was, I'm just some undergraduate, some first year undergraduate and he went, right okay, remind me, what time does it start? And I went, um, uh, I think we said seven o'clock, he went, oh right, okay, will there be booze? I went, um, sorry? He went, booze, drink, is it, it we're going to be have a bit of a laugh or are we going to we're going to be stood around or getting sad. And I went, um, no, I think we just said bring, bring a bottle or so, you know. And then he reaches into this drawer and brings out the best part of 40, 50 quid in cash from the petty cash drawer. Different, right, now, it's 5.45 now. Gives you the best part of two hours to go down to the offy and get some proper wine. Don't get that rubbish either. And I remember thinking, what an absolute legend. That evening we had, and, and many evenings after, of course, that was the, the template, and we got to hear his own poetry, him reading other poets. I couldn't tell you for the life of me what they were now, and I'm sure somebody who knows Derek will have a list of his poems. He sadly passed a couple of years ago of pancreatic cancer, and I really, really miss him. And one thing that it really gave me the confidence to do was read poetry aloud, because that's what I believe it's for. Yes, reading poetry in quiet contemplation is a lovely thing to be able to do, but I believe it's for the ears, not just for the eyes. And so I've tried to keep that tradition alive in some small form, like the smallest of embers from a fire that I once was involved in, and if that isn't a crap metaphor, I don't know what is. A lot of my poetry that I managed to actually commit to paper, it does have shades of darkness to it. And so I'm going to read to you a poem which is very personal to me, and yet it is about a place that I must say I've never been. So there's a couple of layers of complexity here. The poem itself is called The Forest. And just to clue you in, there is a forest around the base of Mount Fuji in Japan, where people can often go to take their own lives. I've only been to Japan once, and I've never been to Mount Fuji, but my time teaching in South Korea, which I've mentioned a few times in my pod, has given me a small insight into the issues surrounding East Asian attitudes towards shame and mental health. Ultimately, it's seen as your problem, and you don't want to bring shame upon your family. I then saw a documentary some years later about an elderly Japanese man who worked as a park ranger in the forest and how a large part of his job was trying to talk people out of killing themselves. He explained that people use coloured tape and that they wrap around the trees and they sort of leave it like this sort of trail, if you like. 
and they use this tape to show that they're in a dark place, but that they want to be found. And the reason for this, of course, is because the forest itself is referred to as the Jukai, the Sea of Trees. It's very difficult to find individuals in all of those trees. Now, when he followed this trail, he usually found a tent, which was a good sign, or most of the time he could also find a body. Rarely did he find both. But in this little documentary, which I urge you to watch, but if you are affected by talk of suicide, I maybe say that you shouldn't watch it. There was something in this man's manner that I found so gentle and so calm in the face of this awful grinning death lurking among the trees that I felt compelled to make him the subject of this piece. So, this is more of an observation of a few things. It's certainly not a condemnation of those who decide to make a permanent choice for what are often temporary problems. Far from it. It's looking at how selfish mental illnesses can make us. How they cloud our judgments and our view to blue skies overhead that might otherwise give us hope. The Forest Azuo Hisashi patrols the Jukai, a sea of trees, a compass around his old neck, and a pair of bright white gloves show, like a conductor of traffic. He walks with an undertaker's speed until he sees the tape wrapped around the pine trees tight. He knows that if he follows it, he'll find something. He always does. The tape is hope or dread. Those who unwind it do so as a lifeline for finding their way out of this mossy, labyrinthine place. Sometimes he finds them at the end of a rope. Pain and anguish at the last. Today, he just finds some poor soul's tent lashed to the trees and, by the entrance, some empty bottles, Raymond packets, a stove. The tent is empty. He smiles. If they'd killed themselves, they'd take this down. He wonders where they went. It isn't always this way. Last month, there was a girl of college age. He tries to forget the dress her new shoes, the Hello Kitty bag of books, her little skull picked clean. Birds chatter about their young overhead, not heeding the dead. You think you die alone, he said. That's just not true. 